I'm going to begin by reading to you an email that I received this past week, and I, I was uh, thinking about it on the way here this morning. I pray that it's no, for no other reason than to highlight the gospel and the power of the scriptures, um, and in no way is related to me. That's my prayer this morning as I read this email. Um, hello, James. I didn't want to miss the opportunity to thank you for the message on Sunday. My husband and I were so instructed and encouraged But the gospel highlighted in the passage last week. My heart is full of thanksgiving because the Lord is evidently answering our prayers and continuing to grow our church's understanding of the gospel of Christ as unfolded in full and in great beautiful detail throughout the scriptures. It was so soul-satisfying to be reminded again that as a church we cherish the perfect, pure, and trustworthy law of the Lord, and more importantly, why we do. Because it is God's chosen means through which to unveil the priceless gospel of unmerited grace through Christ and the righteousness which comes through faith alone. It was so good and helpful to hear how the word and the gospel work together in that way. Our prayers are with you and the leaders of the church, and we look forward to how he'll continue to grow us as a church to really gain Christ and the glorious riches that are ours because of him. I received that email, and that made my day. So thrilled my heart. Um, First reason is because, you know, whenever as a preacher you hear or you find out someone's listening, (laughs) someone's actually like listening to you, that's a joy. Because sometimes you, you question, you wonder, anybody out there, is the mic on, right? Are any light bulbs, uh, you know, coming on? But second, more importantly, I'll, it throw my heart because the person heard this main point that I was trying to make, that we have a high view of the Word of God. We cherish the matchless scriptures, but Why? Because it is only in the scriptures we are told of God's love for us. It is only in the scriptures that it is disclosed of who God is, that he is our creator, he is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, he is thrice holy, he is immutable, he is sovereign. But not only that, it reveals to us who we are, that we are desperate, wicked sinners, that we are horrible, evil, depraved people, undeserving of God's love. I read uh, John Kim, he's one of our CF stu- CF CBF students, and he was writing on his uh, Facebook how he's understanding the difference between we're sinners because we sin. No, we sin because we're sinners. He was saying it's easier to admit to sin, particular sins, but it's so much more difficult to admit that I'm a sinner, that I am evil, that I am depraved. Where do we find this truth? Only in the scriptures. And it is only in the Bible that we are told of God's um, transcendent, supreme love for us. That while we're yet sinners, while we're in this dreadful condition, God, seeing how hopeless we were, He rescued us, He saved us, He delivered us, not through any works of ours, because that's impossible. He saved us through faith alone by grace. And that is why we love the scriptures. That is why we're committed to 
knowing and studying and memorizing and meditating and making the scriptures ours because of the gospel. That changes everything. That understanding changes everything. That the Bible is our authority, not as some taskmaster, not as some slave master telling us what to do. The Bible is our authority because of God's love for us. It changes um, why you have come this morning to hear God's word preached. If you understand that, you have come not out of guilt or you have to compensate somehow for your your sins or inadequacies or weaknesses. You come this day not out of duty or obligation. You're sitting there not with restlessness or fear. What is James going to say? Right? How am I going to be rebuked this day? What sin is going to be exposed where I feel so guilty and full of shame? It changes everything because with that understanding, we come to church to hear God's word to be set free. We study God's word because because of His love for us, it's a delight, it's a joy, it's our heart's passion. We delight in the Word of God and we go to it, uh, not forced to, not prodded in some way, but we do it like, uh, you know, kids go to Disneyland. You know, we go to it like uh, kids run to a candy store. Uh, we go to it like, you know, I watch the Lakers, right? With joy. Come on, Lakers fans, like, Cornerstone, we need to grow in like converting to loving the Lakers. Right? Away from Golden State, away from the Bulls, away from LeBron, come back home. Right? The bandwagon is still, uh, we have room for you guys. Used to be, I mentioned the Lakers, there'd be this great roar of applause at Cornerstone. And now it's like, ah, we'll work on that after the gospel. Okay? It changes everything. Um, so here we are in verse 16 of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. Verse, verse 16. It is the Mount Everest of the New Testament in terms of uh, the scripture itself. It, it is uh, the apex. It is the place to go. It is the most often quoted verse when we speak of Scripture, the Word of God, the Bible. No other passage in the Bible <coughs> speaks so concisely of the nature and work of God's Word and salvation and sanctification than in this passage. We see here uh, a singular declaration of the source of Scripture the benefits of the scriptures, and the purpose of the scriptures. So three, three points to kind of guidepost to uh, study, study verse 16 and 17. Uh, the source of scripture, the four benefits of scripture, and the purpose of scripture. The first is the source of the word of God. Paul writes here, Pasa Grafe. Pasa is all, every. Grafe is the writings, the scriptures. He's speaking of the Old Testament, but we know with the closing of the canon and the way Paul quoted Luke and the way Peter quoted Paul, that they understood in 1 Corinthians 1 as well, you know, we don't have the time to go through all of this, but they understood that they were writing holy scriptures. That what Luke wrote, 
Gospel of Luke, Luke that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. When Peter was quoting Paul in his epistle, 1 Peter, he knew he was quoting the Word of God. Every scripture, old and new, is breathed out by God. Theonustos. Theo is God. Neustos is literally spoken, uttered, or breathed out by God. Every scripture is God breathed, God uttered. The Bible is not a collection of the wisdom of men. They're hypotheses, their conjecture, their thoughts or ideas about God. It is not the eloquence of, of, of people. It is God disclosing himself. It is God unveiling himself, his truth about his character, his truth about us, and truth about his redemptive plan to save those who are helpless in sin. When we read God's word, we are reading uh, we are hearing God's voice. I was reading this week ex- excerpts from B.B. Uh, Warfield's book, The Inspiration and the Authority of Scripture. And he's got a chapter there, a lengthy chapter, where the title is, where scriptures, When Scripture Speaks, God is Speaking. And that's the only thing I'm going to quote from that whole chapter, because it is so complex. But that point is, so powerful. When Scripture is speaking, God is speaking. And he uses uh, uh, several illustrations from the Scriptures to defend this. He talks about how in Galatians 3.8, Paul said that Scripture is speaking. When um, the promise was made to Abraham that he will, all nations will be blessed. Scripture is speaking. But he is quoting Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3. And in that passage, it's in quotations, God is speaking. So we see here how Scripture and God is used interchangeably. God is the one who's speaking in Genesis 12, but Paul says, Scripture says. Likewise, in Romans 9.17, Paul says, The Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up, that I might display my power in you. But if you go to Exodus 9, it is not Scripture speaking. It is God speaking through Moses. Opposite of that is in Matthew 19, 4 and 5. Jesus said, uh, he's quoting God. God says this, Therefore a man shall leave his family and be cleaved to his wife. What God has joined together, let no man separate. separate. And Jesus is saying, says, God said this. But if you go to Genesis 2, 24, God is not the one speaking those words. It is the writer of Genesis, Moses, writing this down in Scripture. And yet, Jesus says that was God speaking. So in the Bible, it's used interchangeably. So when we read the Word of God, it is God speaking. Um, you know, Piper did this in a funny way a few, a few months ago. He's got this blog, and the title of his blog was, This Morning, I Heard the Voice of God. I heard God's voice. So a lot of people, you know, raced to his website to hear what did God say. God spoke to John Piper, right? Extra, extra. Read all about it. God is speaking. What what could have God said to John Piper? And then you read it. You read the blog, and it's all about, 
you know, Romans 8 and, you know, John 3. And you're like, oh, it's just the Bible. <laughs> no, no, no. His point was, when, you, when we read the Bible, when we meditate on Scripture, God is speaking. And that is what verse 16 is saying. Every Scripture, right, all of it, and then in subsequent parts, is breathed out by God. That's the source. Source is God himself. And there are four consequent benefits of the word of God. Four benefits. Um, they're beneficial and possible. They're profitable. They're advantageous. Right? It's valuable. Now, we saw this in verse 15. We'll see it here in verse 16. We will see it again in verse 17. Uh, I'm going to repeat it like like last week. This tells us that the Bible is a means to an end and not an end in itself. Please get this point. The Bible is a means, not an end. That is why through the sacred writings, verse 15 You were given wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And here in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for something else. It's a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. Um, I think it was like last week, Gary took me out to a a Japanese restaurant. Uh, Gary knows all these places in South Orange County with good food. Went to this Japanese restaurant and out in the front window, what do you see in Japanese restaurants? Uh, you know, a glass case with all this fake food. What they're going to serve you inside. And so why do they have that? You know, one reason is for you to pick, you know, pick what you want to eat when you enter the restaurant. But it's also to entice people to come in and eat because the food is good. Right? So you, you're walking through and I saw chicken curry and it looked very delicious. So I went and ordered that. And it wasn't that good. No, it was, it was really good. It was really good, right? Now, the, the fake food that's displayed in the front, it's a means to an end. The, it's not there so that a crowd of people will gather around it and salivate around the display and just look at it and adore it and cherish it and applaud it. That's not the purpose. The purpose is for you to look at it and then go in and eat. Likewise with the scriptures. It's a means to an end for us to look at the Word of God and adore it and praise it and cherish it and value it and defend inerrancy and infallibility and sufficiency and inspiration without going into the Bible and receiving and tasting and and eating and believing in what the Bible tells us is uh, missing the point of the scriptures. It's missing the point of the scriptures. We are not to merely uh, take in the word of God or look at the word of God. We are to take in the word of God, receive it and believe it and follow it. Um, There are uh, thousands who would vehemently defend the Bible as the word of God. But there are only few of that thousands who would actually read it. And of the few, there are even fewer still 
would actually believe what it says. There are so many who are uh, boisterously uh, defending the Bible, but few are reading it. And of the few, how many truly uh, go in and believe its message? That's what Paul is saying. It is profitable. It's a means to an end. There are four benefits of the Bible. Four benefits. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. The first one, teaching, is didaskalia. It does not refer to the process of teaching. It's a noun. It refers to the content of teaching. It is theology. It is doctrine. It is truth. It refers specifically and exclusively to divine instruction. The divine doctrine given to believers through God's Word. It's saying the Bible, specifically its content, its truth is profitable. So we do not merely mindlessly read the Bible or, or take in Scripture. We must take in its truth, its message, its proclamation. We are to... Uh, Read it and study study it for that content. And once we grasp that content by faith, then and only then is it profitable to us. Right. So that's why you know, my job is not merely to regurgitate the Bible. It's, you know, my job, I did it last week, but I only did it half the time. My job is not to memorize the Bible and just quote it to you. If that's all I did every Sunday... I would not be fulfilling my mandate and it would not be profitable to you if all I did was memorize the Bible and recite it to you. The the preacher's job, the teacher's job is to deliver the truth of God's Word, not just the words of it. And Likewise, as Christians, we're not just to receive parts of God's Word, the, the words, the verses, or chapters, we have to receive its truth, its theology. It's profitable for theology. That is why what you want from a pastor is, what you don't want is someone who will open the Bible, read a verse, and then just spew out a sermon based upon his own wisdom or experience or ideas. Then he's not delivering to you the truth of Scripture. What you want from a preacher or teacher is, to open the Bible, and to explicate truths from the Scriptures. Because then and only then is it profitable to you. Secondly, it's uh, profitable for reproof. Reproof. Elegmas. Carries the idea of uh, convicting hearts. It has to do with content. Richard Trench, a noted uh, British theologian, comments on this word, and he said, offering it with such effectual wielding where it leads to conviction of sin and confession. It is uh, not just rebuking, but convincing the heart. The word of God is profitable to convince us of error and truth. The Word of God is powerful 
Word of God as a hammer. The Word of God as a fire to be used to convince us the sinfulness of our sins and even to convince us of sin in our righteousness. I sin in our righteousness. So I think that's where the power of the Word of God is. Only God's Word will allow us to see sin in our righteousness. Only the Word of God. Without the Word of God, our conscience convicts us of sin. The non-believers are often convinced of their evil or their wickedness or their or sinfulness. But unbelievers cannot, and people in false religion cannot see sin in their religion, in their morality, in their good works. But only through the Word of God, He God reveals to us the depth of our sins to a point where even the most righteous things we do, even in our our, our best prayers, our best sermons, our best works, it is tainted and corrupted by sin. For apart from Christ, we are motivated by self, motivated by pride or selfish agenda. That's why what we read this morning together is congregational reading was, even on my best day, I'm undeserving of your grace. Because my best day is corrupted and tainted by sin. The Word of God is profitable for that. That's why we... We study. That's why we, we proclaim the Word of God. To conv- convict us where, apart from the Word of God, this is not possible. Without the Scriptures, we would all have uh, high views of ourselves because of our morality or religiosity. Only through Scripture are we convicted that we are truly sinners. Because it exposes our sins behind our, our best deeds. Third benefit is our correction. Correction. It's the opposite of conviction. It is a positive provision. provision. The idea is um, setting a person back on the right course. Uh, it was used of setting a bone straight, a bone's broken, and a doctor would set it back, correct it, put it together. And the Word of God corrects us, puts us back on the right course. doesn't just uh, convince us of error. It tells us what is right in the sight of God. And then finally, uh, training in righteousness. Right. Training in righteousness. Where there is paideia, it can be used of any sort of training, idea of instruction and building up. But... Um, what Paul is saying here, especially not of the context, it is not physical training. It is not um, disciplining ourselves to wake up in the morning to read the Bible. It's not the discipline of keeping ourselves awake with uh, you know, monster fuel drinks to pray at night. It's not forcing ourselves to memorize four chapters of Second Timothy. That's not what, it's, what he's talking about. He's talking about spiritual training. He's talking about heart work. inner man, that religion cannot get to, that morality, you know, the, the shame and pride that our parents use to coerce our behavior cannot get to our hearts. Nothing else can get to our hearts. Only Hebrews 4.12, right? The living and active Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and judging the motives and intentions of the heart. Only God's Word can dig so deep 
the core of our being and expose our motivations and train it, instruct it, conform it where it's consistent with God's will. That's the benefit of the Word of God. We can't get that anywhere. Uh, Someone was telling me that they were doing youth ministry. And youth ministry is always crazy, right? Especially in the church. And he was telling me uh, they did this in one retreat. They had a persecution retreat where (laughs) they had all the leaders and counselors persecute the kids. Like they were in a, uh, a communist country. And they had these kids lug around boulders, I don't boulder, rocks in their backpacks. They, they, they made them go without food and water. And like one teacher got so amped up, actually like physically assaulted a kid. Right? If that would happen, happen today, like we would get sued. I was like 20, 30 years ago. But like a student got like beat and all like trying to force them to stand for Christ. And then the counselors would say, deny Jesus and you turn away, and the students are like, no, I believe in Jesus. And they did this to train their kids to stand for God's word, stand for the gospel. Right. Well, you know, there's different ways of, I like, guess, youth ministry. I don't know if I would do it that way, but that's not what he's talking about here. Right. All that does is change behavior, has, has nothing to do with the heart. Only God's word goes to the depths, the complexities of a person's motivations, and trains that person spiritually to conform to Christ. Four benefits. Right. So Paul says, sources of Scripture is God. These are the benefits. He's enticing us. And then he tells us the purpose. And uh, verse 17, it's, you know, I was surprised to find this. It does not say, so that the church will be thoroughly competent, equipped for every good work. It does not say so that your small group members might be holy and godly, so that other people might be doers of good works. What does it say there? <coughs> so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. We are to use the scripture for ourselves, not others. Anytime you read the Bible and you seek to use that for others, you are misusing the Bible. You are missing the purpose of the Bible. If you are studying and memorizing, meditating to argue and debate, teach and minister to others, you're still on the outside of the restaurant looking at the display and you're not going in to eat. Because that's not the purpose of the Word of God. It's for ourselves so that I might be competent, equipped for every good works. Every good work. It's um, self-focused. Unless I believe the Scriptures, and unless I am taught by its truth, unless I am convinced, unless I am corrected, unless I am spiritually trained, I am missing the purpose of the Word of God. This past week, I emailed pastors and leaders of our church a sermon by Mark Driscoll because it was uh, such a helpful sermon. He was talking in the message um, about idolatry and how churches are filled with people who have a confession of faith, but they're not living out that faith. And you can see that in their idolatry. How people, well-meaning Christians, take good things and make it into ultimate things. 
In the sight of God, it is the worst thing. Why? Because when we do that, we are violating the first commandment. We're not breaking a, a secondary law. We're not, it's not a traffic violation. It's not a rolling stop at a stop sign. When we have idols in our hearts, when we make a good thing and make it the ultimate thing, and make it a functional savior for us, the law that we're breaking, we're breaking God's heart because we're not loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind. We're just saying that but practically, functionally, we're loving something else. And he was talking about how people idolize their children, idolize the safety of their kids, their well-being, their success, their achievement, their future. And in that way, you make a monster out of them, right? You make them out to be all these uh, rock stars who flame out, right? People make idols out of them, and they can't, the burden and pressure of being other people's idols, the burden and pressure of trying to make other people happy, it, it causes them to, be, to have a self-destructive behavior that spirals out of control. So when parents do this and make idols out of their, out of their kids, and their kid is the source of their happiness, what, what happens? It destroys the parents, it destroys the children. Or you make an idol out of, out of marriage. You're single and God said it's not good for a man to be alone. It's a good thing to be married. And when he gets a wife, it's a good thing. But you make an ultimate thing. You make it this, uh, uh, you, you make it like you're Jesus, your functional savior. If only I am married, then I'll be happy. Jesus is not enough. And you do that, and that's a functional savior. It's idolatry. You can make your job, your career, your idol where you lose your job and people jump out of buildings. Why? Why? People become alcoholics. They become drug addicts. Why? They leave their spouses. They leave their families. Why? Because their identity is so tied to their work, their career, without their job, without their income, without that status, there's no value. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. There's no identity. Their work, their job is everything or, or religious works, right? ministry. Right? What they do in the church is so important to them. Because their value, their identity is tied to this. And so he was going off on this and he was telling us how it's so easy for us leaders to huff and puff because of the sins of the people. It's so easy for leaders to be angry and frustrated, to be impatient with other people because they are committing idolatry, because they are sinning, because they have functional saviors and they're not delighting in Christ. And then he opened up to Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel 14. Maybe, maybe turn there if you, if you want to. Ezekiel 14, verse 1. Same thing here. The elders of Israel are frustrated by the sins of the people. They are upset. They're losing sleep by the people's unbelief, their sinfulness, their unfaithfulness, their lack of devotion and commitment, so much idolatry. So all the leaders of Israel, all the elders gather together and they go to Ezekiel because he is a prophet priest of God. They gather around and they sit before Ezekiel and as Ezekiel is standing before them, the word of God comes to Ezekiel. And verse 3, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. 
Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? God is talking not about the people of Israel. He's talking about the elders of Israel. Should I allow myself to be consulted? Should I listen to their prayers? When these elders of Israel have allowed themselves and have put idols into their own hearts? The first time in the Bible where heart idolatry is mentioned and this is committed not by the people but by the elders. The reason people are worshipping idols is because the leaders are worshipping idols. Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idol into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I the Lord will answer him as he comes with this multitude of his idols that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. God is speaking to the elders, the leaders. So, is it possible that God is speaking to us here in verse 16 of chapter 3? That the scripture is given to us for not us to use for other people, but so that we might be competent, equipped for every good work. So that we might be transformed, that we might repent and truly worship God as the one true God. Could it be that the greatest need of your family, of your children, of your small group, of this church, is for you and I to repent and trust the message of the Word of God and to be fashioned by it, to be sharpened by it, to be convinced by it, taught by it, to be corrected by it, to be trained by it? Could it be, uh, is it possible that the problem of your life, the problem of your family, your spouse, your children, your small group and this church is, is your idolatry? That the greatest need of Cornerstone is not for you to repent. The greatest need is for me to repent of my idolatry. Of my, of my deep sins. Let me tell you, let me just share it with you a little bit. It's kind of funny, but... Funny story, possibly funny, but... I don't know. It's, it might help you how God's revealing to me my idols. So a few weeks ago, we had the Olympics... And I'm watching on a Friday night the figure skating, right? Women's figure skating. So I'm not proud of this, but <laughs> right? I don't it's not my habit. I don't follow figure skating, but watching it Friday night. And short program was Wednesday, I think, and the long program was you know Friday and it was Mawasada and Kim Yuna, right? Actually it's Kim Yuna, yeah, I see in Korean. Yuna is wrong, right? And so uh Kim Yuna had a, had a lead and Mao Asada performed. Oh no, Kim Yuna was to perform and it already happened, right, in Vancouver, right? But, you know, NBC, they want to make money so they, they showed at the end, like 11.30 at night. And I'm like half falling asleep. But they, they were waiting to the end to show her performance. So I know I could log on to you know, ESPN.com or Yahoo anywhere and find out who won. So certain so I are watching, I'm like getting all anxious. I'm getting all amped up. I'm, I'm like kind of like losing my composure here. 
because I'm so anxious about what if, you know, figure skating, right? I don't, I don't know. You guys know figure skating. Like, perfect performance, but like one slip, like uh, you're three millimeters off and you're, you messed up, you lost everything, right? So it's a very like difficult thing to watch. So I'm like sitting there, like, Surin, like let me check. I want to check to see who won. And someone's like, don't do that. Why do you want to check? Just watch. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'll just watch. And I'm like having a hard time. A few weeks ago, I remember counseling a brother who was ha- having a tough time watching the Super Bowl because he wanted a certain team uh, you know, to win. And I was saying, brother, you know, the reason you have a hard time watching the Super Bowl is because of your idolatry. Right? You're, you're, t- you're connecting your self-worth to this team, to this player. And that's why you're having a hard time. It's idolatry. I remember that and I thought to myself, what is my idolatry? Why am I on? Because I don't figure skating. I, I, don't ca- I couldn't care less about figure skating. I couldn't care less about, you know, especially women doing it. I, no, men. Men's worse. I, I, men's worse, right? I watch women. What is it? And I realized, oh, there is a lot of racial pride in my heart. There's a lot of racism in my heart. There's ethnic pride. I don't know this gal. Right? She's not part of my family. Right? She didn't come to my church. Only thing common between us is, is we're Korean. And because of that, I'm anxious because in my heart, I'm boasting in my Koreanness. I, I want to wave the Korean flag if she wins in my house. <laughs> and that's racist. And I was confessing this to my wife. and I had no idea, Surin. I was such a racist. I was such, you know, like... So ethnic pride, and so we're like, you didn't know? <laughs> I could have told you that on our first date. I was so blind. So while we were watching, I was like repenting of my sin. And when she won, you know, I was, God was giving me grace. Or I was like thankful for our performance, but it wasn't like against another ethnic group or another country or boasting in my, uh, my race. But this is how deep sin is. And so I'm realizing bl- the blind spot is not a, blind spot. It's, it's ourselves. It's myself. I was completely blind to my own idolatry. And in so many ways was offending people, hurting people, dividing people. Right? That is how um, God works in our, in our lives. It's not by using the scriptures to expose other people's idols and get other people to conform to Christ, it is by using the scriptures for ourselves. So that we might be indeed a man of God, a woman of God. How do we do this? How can we have the word of God have such place in our lives? And it is not by works, it's by faith. It's not by doing the scripture, but it's by believing the scripture. And let me, listen, if you believe the Bible, you will leave the Bible behind. If you believe the Bible, you will leave the Bible. What am I saying? Um, John the Baptist was doing his ministry. and They were going to him. Are you the Christ? We want to follow you. And he said, I am not the Christ. Someone who's coming, of whom I'm unworthy to, to tie his shoelaces. I must decrease, he must increase. All of you, if you believe in me, you will follow Jesus. You will not follow me. 
all of Scripture, John the Baptist, Baptist, he's a prophet, prophet of God, the last prophet, all of Scripture is summed up in, in, in his ministry. And their message is parallel. John the Baptist said, go to Jesus. Listen, believe what I'm saying. Believe my message. Go to Jesus. That's what the Bible says as well. All of the scriptures tell us, go to Jesus. Believe in Him. Hope in Him. Rely in Him. And if we do that, then scripture will be valuable to us. All of the Bible does this. The law does this. Galatians 3.24 The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law is temporary. The law is our tutor. And tutor has a purpose. To to lead a child towards someone or something else. So the law is a tutor, a guardian leading us to Jesus Christ. So when Jesus Christ came, it is the shadow, the reality has come. We are to leave the law and go to Christ. We read the narratives of the Old Testament and you read David and Goliath and you read it like it's about us, about me, and I need to be like David and be courageous and brave and conquer the giants in my life. You have that perspective and it's going to ruin you. You're going to get lost. You're going to be filled with anxiety and doubt, frustration and anger or pride or boasting. You're going to be filled with all kinds of frustrations, all kinds of doubt. Your Christian life will be critical, mechanical, filled with judgmentalism. You will hide your sins. You will not be vulnerable if you see the Bible as what, what you are to do. Even the, even the Gospels. The Gospels point us to Jesus, not to ourselves. That's why what would Jesus do is, is so, so damaging. So damaging. We can't You know, I can't be Jesus to you. You can't be Jesus to me. We can't be Jesus to one another. There's only one Jesus. So what did Jesus do? We worship Him. We trust Him. We believe in Him because we believe the Scriptures. And what does that do? It transforms our inner man. It, it, It sets us free from our idols. It causes us to uh, be an instrument in the hand of God for every good work. If you're not convinced, just look at the Pharisees. Be convinced by the example of the Pharisees. If anybody believed in the inerrancy of the scriptures, inspiration, infallibility, sufficiency uh, of the word of God, anyone was committed to the word of God, memorized or devoted was the Pharisees. And what did they do? They murdered. They hated Jesus. They refused to come to Jesus because they were committed to the word but they didn't believe the word. And the word said, believe in Jesus. And so John 5, 29, the 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Yet it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. So, if you read the Bible that way, you're missing it. If you're committed to the Word of God, and you don't see it as a means to an end, and so you don't leave the Bible, what you are doing is you're still, okay, I'm gonna, I've, I've milked this illustration to, to death. You're still outside the restaurant, looking at the food, and you're filled with, you don't have God's love. You're, you're, you look in, and people are enjoying the gospel, and you're, 
envy and there's, there's bitterness and there's resentment and there's judgmentalism and anxiety and frustration and you fear God's wrath for you. You're outside looking in. If you're committed to the Bible, if you are, why don't you believe it? Why don't you come in? Why don't you go to Jesus? He'll accept you. He'll receive you. He will lavish on you God's love so that you might taste Maybe for the first time. We might taste, experience it for the first time. That God is good. The word is sweet. That it will satisfy your soul. Your Bible in hand, with your pen in hand, if you just bow, close your eyes, right where you are. Oh Lord, we uh, thank you for the pure word of God. We thank you for these the special revelation, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament that you have given to us as a gift. And this gift points to your Son. This gift beckons us, calls us irresistibly, stubbornly calls us to believe and and receive and, and trust in the Son that whom you have provided so that through your Son, the Word of God might be fully activated in this life, in our lives. That the Word of God might be released and be powerful as it is to change us, transform us, liberate us, empower us to worship You, to turn away from sin, and to glorify You. Lord, all this time we have limited the power of the Word of God by our unbelief. Lord, we uh, look to You and we, with our mustard seed of faith, depend upon You that You will do it. And so that by our heart change, in that way, it would influence our wives and our husbands, it would influence our children, influence our small groups and our our church. It would not be external, legalistic way we would be changed. But we would be changed by the Spirit, through faith, all by you. And so at the end, you would get all the glory. We would just say you did it all. In Jesus' name we pray.